good evening, everyone. We're so glad that you could join us for what I think is going to be a very exciting session this evening. We're pleased to have presenting again this evening our friend, Mr. Ron Kidd. And Ron is going to speak about an important passage in John chapter 10, a passage that says, I and my father are one. And I think he's going to highlight the importance of careful Bible reading to show how critical it is to understand the context of a discussion or a verse and how we need to connect it with other ideas in scripture so, so we come to the right conclusion and understanding of a passage. And so he's going to take us through this topic, what did Jesus mean, I and my father are one. In our prophecy section, we're going to tackle one of the most interesting ideas in the Bible. And we're going to tackle and introduce the idea of Armageddon. And you might be surprised to, to find out that Armageddon only shows up once in the entire Bible. And you probably won't be surprised to find out that it occurs in the book of Revelation. So here's the verse in Revelation chapter 16. It's our introductory verse for the week. And it says, he gathered them, that's God, into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the basics of this verse is that there's a place uh, where a battle will take place. And there's a very important point made here that it comes from the Hebrew tongue. And it's interesting because Revelation is a book in the New Testament which was written entirely in Greek. So the Bible is saying, in order to understand Armageddon, we need to go back to the Old Testament. That's the part of the Bible that was written in Hebrew. And uh, that's what we're going to do. But before we do, we have to step back and answer the question, well, how does Armageddon fit into our studies that we've been doing over the last four or five, five weeks? So you remember that this is the, uh, the pattern that we've been following, the, the schedule. Uh, we've been looking at the events that will ultimately culminate in the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. And what we've seen so far is that Christ will return literally to the earth. And when he does, he's going to raise the dead. Um, he's going to raise from the dead those that God wishes to reward or, or punish. And in order to determine who receives a reward and who receives punishment, well, there's going to be a judgment that takes place, and, and uh, Jesus is going to do that. And we talked about that last week in our webinar. God is going to call people together, men and women, and judge them according to their actions. And to some, they'll be given immortality or eternal life, and there's others that are going to face the shame and rejection uh, and ultimately die once again, never to be raised. And all this is going to happen before Jesus becomes the ruler during a thousand year reign on earth, which is termed here the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. So in between the judgment and the millennial reign, we've got this concept of Armageddon. And probably everybody who's heard the term Armageddon equates it with an immense battle that will take place at the end of the world. And you might think, well, what does a giant war have to do with all these events in this list? How does Armageddon fit in? Well, I find this verse very helpful at the end of Revelation. It helps us understand the reason for the battle of Armageddon. I'll just read it here. It's in Revelation 20, just towards the end of the Bible. It says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
And perhaps the first thing to note is that this verse supports the order of events that we've talked about in our, our webinars. So you'll notice here the link between the establishment of the kingdom and the resurrection. When Christ returns, he raises the dead. And then there's a, a fat reign of Jesus Christ. But it also speaks of a group of people here who are very blessed. And, and why are these people blessed? Well, they've been resurrected and they're not susceptible to death anymore. You notice that phrase there, they, they shall, um, on such the second death hath no power. And death is termed a second death. And, and I want you to think of men like Abraham and David who died thousands of years ago. They died once. They were resurrected or they will be resurrected. They're judged acceptable. And as such, they're never going to die again. And so that's why this verse says the power of the second death has no power over them. They will not die a second time. So this verse is speaking about all those who have passed through judgment and have been made immortal. And they're going to live and reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years years. And so there's a pretty amazing promise made here that, that those that are acceptable will be made immortal. They'll be part of a glorious kingdom on earth. They'll become rulers with Jesus Christ. And they'll be both kings and priests. They'll reign, but they'll also have the role of a priest, which is to teach other people about the ways of God. And these people are going to see the earth filled with the glory of God. And that's a pretty amazing and exciting promise. Okay, so where does Armageddon fit in? Well, think about this just a little bit. Imagine what the rulers of this world will think and do when another man comes along and says that he's going to rule the earth with these men and women that he's brought with them. Think about what men like Vladimir Putin of Russia might think when a group of people say, we're going to rule the earth and set up a kingdom upon this earth. And you'll remember this slide from, from one of our first webinars. It's the image of Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And the image that's there on the left side represents all the kingdoms and the rulers of men. And there's a stone that comes out of a mountain, cut out without hands, and it, it breaks the image into pieces. And uh, what Daniel 4 tells us is that this is the kingdom of God, which is going to be set up never to be left to other people, but it's going to break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. So Christ is going to take away the power and the rulers of this world when he establishes God's kingdom. And uh, you can see another verse that, that backs this up in Daniel chapter 7. It's, it's the same concept. The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So all the power of the world is going to be taken from the rulers and given to Christ and those that come with him, those that were judged worthy. And when you read it, it sounds so easy, doesn't it? Like, it's just going to happen. Like you take a ball from one child and you give it to another. But both the Bible and common sense tells us that it's, it's not going to happen like that. And so we come to the Battle of Armageddon. We come to Revelation chapter 16, the only verse where Armageddon appears. And let's just take a minute and, and look at the section a little more closely. And in fact, a little bit more broadly. I've, I've put up there the whole section starting at verse 14. And I'll read it 
to you. It says, for they are the spirits, and it's talking about ideas that will go into the world, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then parentheses, he says, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. And sections like this, I don't know about you, but they can seem intimidating. What does all this language mean? And I think it's a really good idea just to break it down into small pieces. What can we learn about Armageddon from just these few verses in the Bible? Well, the first thing is something we probably already know, or at least expect, is that Armageddon is a battle. God's going to gather them to the battle of that great day. And the second idea is that this is going to take place at the end of, at the end days, uh, the great battle or that great day of God Almighty. And the Bible often uses this term to, to refer to a specific time period. Ultimately, it's the period where God uh, begins to change the kingdoms of this world. And it's very clear from, the, from verse 15 that this is at the time of the return of Christ. That phrase there, I come as a thief, is always related to the return of Christ. And it's a warning that we should watch. And so Christ is going to be involved in the events of Armageddon. Okay, so we've, we've answered a couple of questions. The what, a great battle, and the when, it's going to be in the last day at the return of Christ. Well, who's going to be involved? And again, we see it quite clear in this, in this section that it's God's intent to gather all the nations of the world to a battle so that he can judge them. And, and part of the purpose of Armageddon is to physically wrestle away power from the leaders of the world and to establish it in the, in the authority of Jesus Christ and the saints that have come with him. So all the kings of the earth and of the whole world are gathered together. And uh, there's actually an amazing prophecy about this in the book of Zephaniah. We're told to go back to the Hebrew Bible to, to understand Armageddon. It says in Zephaniah 3, uh, there are God's words, my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And you can see here God's determination. He says, nothing's going to stop me from establishing my kingdom. And are we talking about the same language as Revelation? Well, it's to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms. It's talking about judgment. And perhaps you find it difficult to understand, well, why would God work in this way? Why would God want to bring all the nations of the world together for a battle? Well, this is where I find the next verse in Zephaniah very helpful. It says in Zephaniah 3 verse 9, for then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. It's God's purpose to fill the earth with righteousness. And he's going to create a situation on the earth where all men will serve him. He terms it a, a pure language as if everybody speaks the same language. And it's the language of God where, where men will think the same. They'll think according to God's ways. And sadly, this requires the judgment of the nations that won't accept Christ as, as king. God's got to remove the evil of the nations from the world. 
So it's, it's with this understanding that we realize that a battle is needed. But we might ask, well, why call it the Battle of Armageddon? Why give it a specific name in Revelation? Because as we've seen, you know, Armageddon is only mentioned once in the Bible. So I can't take you to another verse and say, well, this is what it's about. But there's an important clue in Revelation 16 when it talks about Armageddon. It tells us that Armageddon is from the Hebrew language, from the Hebrew tongue. And um, as we know, as we mentioned, the New Testament was written in Greek. So it's specifically referring to the fact that we should look to the Hebrew. Now, if I could, I'd take you to the Old Testament and say, well, here's the verse where Armageddon shows up in the Hebrew language. But nowhere in the ancient Hebrew text do you find the word Armageddon. But it's clearly from the Hebrew. And what's neat is Armageddon is made up of three Hebrew words. It's, it's like a phrase or a sentence. And uh, I've split it up there on the screen into Arma, Ged, and Don. These are in you know, English, how we would separate this out. And you can see in Hebrew, there's a Hebrew word that means, that's uh, a rema, which means a heap of sheaves. The word ged or gai is the word for valley. And dawn is the meaning of, of judgment. So really what we have when the Bible gives us Armageddon is like a mini parable about what Armageddon is about. God is going to gather all the nations into a valley. And the nations are going to be like sheaves of wheat. And God is going to thresh the wheat there in a form of judgment to divide the, the wheat from the, from the chaff. And so we add to our basic understanding of Armageddon that it's a battle, it's at the end days, it's at the return of Christ, it's a gathering of the nations, but they're going to be gathered so that God can, can thresh them like wheat, he can judge them. And that's a very important principle. And we think, well, where have we heard that language before? Where have we heard the idea of threshing of wheat and of chaff. Well, you got to think back to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, that dream in Daniel chapter 2. And remember when the stone strikes the image, which represents the kingdoms of men, and the stone becomes a mountain, which is the kingdom of God? Well, it says this of, of, the, of the image in verse 35 of Daniel 2. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And isn't, isn't that fascinating, the language that God chooses? When you take metals and grind them to powder, who would think to, to describe that as being the, the chaff of the summer threshing floors? But this is the wonder of the inspiration of the Bible. God wants us to connect these passages. God wants us to understand that Armageddon is part of the process of establishing the kingdom of God. So I want to finish introducing you to the topic of Armageddon by taking you to two passages, two final passages from the Old Testament. And I think you'll recognize these passages as speaking about Armageddon, even though we won't find the word Armageddon there. And look at what we learn from these passages. So here's Joel chapter 3. I've taken it from the English Standard Version. It says, Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and they have divided up my land. 
do you, do you recognize Armageddon there? We've got the hint that it's in those days, the, the end times. We've got the obvious illusion of gathering the nations and uh, God entering into judgment with them. We've got a valley, which is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And what's fascinating is in, in Hebrew, Jehoshaphat means the judgment of God. So they're brought into the Valley of Judgment, and they're going to be judged as, as one would beat the sheaves of wheat and separate the chaff from, from the wheat. But what does this passage tells us, tell us that's extra? Well, it tells us that it's going to happen after Israel has been regathered. Look at verse 1, when the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem are restored. Well, the fortunes of, of Judah, of Israel, were restored in 1948 when they became a nation. And Jerusalem in 1967 when it was restored to the nation of Israel. We're living in the days when this is going to happen. And the other thing that is told is that the people who come up, the nations that are gathered to Armageddon, they're going to be nations that are opposed to the nation of Israel. Look at the end of verse 2. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. The nations have a purpose for coming against into the valley. They're going, going to come against the nation of Israel. Well, the last verse we have time to look at is from Zechariah chapter 14. And uh, see if you can recognize Armageddon here again. It says in verse 2, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So Armageddon, well, all the nations are coming, and they're coming against Israel, and there's going to be a battle. And what we learn is that half of the city of Jerusalem is going to be taken. They're going to have partial success. But who's going to be the ultimate victor? If we're going to have a battle, who is going to win? Well, we're told in verse 3 that God is going to fight as when he used to fight in the battles of Israel in the Old Testament. God is going to provide the victory. And you'll recognize there in verse 4 the language of the return of Christ, that he's going to stand upon the Mount of Olives. And there's going to be a great deliverance of the nation of Israel at the hand of God through the work of Jesus Christ and those righteous men that come with him that have come through, through judgment. And what we're going to see then is that the battle of Armageddon is a battle at the end of the days, at the return of Christ, when the nations are going to be gathered together to fight against Israel. And although they might have a partial victory, ultimately they're going to be defeated by Jesus Christ. And it's at that time that Jesus is going to set up the kingdom of God, that millennial reign. And you can see how the, the battle of Armageddon then is a link between the period of time from the judgment to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And so there's our, our path to the kingdom of God. And if you can join us next week, we'll sort of fill in the last details and we'll give you the description of what it's going to be like as Jesus becomes the king of the earth for a thousand years. And the wonderful thing is, is that you and I can be part of that reign if we understand what God's doing and seek to follow his example. Well, Ron, I think I'll uh, turn it over to you at this point and uh, I'll let you take over the screen and, and take us through what did Jesus mean, I and my Father are one. Well, good evening, everybody. Nice to be back with you all. 
And just a, an introduction to why we're considering this particular aspect of, of, of scripture, what did Jesus mean? Uh, over the years, in, in my experience, I've encountered a lot of people who have a habit of taking things out of context and just quoting passages and applying meanings to them without giving any reference to where they come from. And uh, this is one of those passages. And we can do that because in Psalm 14, it tells us there is no God. Uh, and obviously, when we, when, when we consider that, there, there's obviously a mistake there. Uh, and, and when we simply quote, there is no God, we, we're taking a passage out of context because Psalm 14 tells us the, the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so what we want to do tonight, we want to examine this term, I and the Father are one. And we want to come to grips with why Jesus said it why the leaders of Israel objected to him saying it, and how Jesus defended his statement by using scripture. And, and what we'll find as we, we look at this passage, we will find that we can use uh, a concordance, we can look at context, uh, and we can look at the, uh, the way in which the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament, uh, which if you have bi uh, Bible references in your margin of your Bible, you can check those out. Now, there we have on the screen the, the problem verse, I and my Father are one. And that's taken from John chapter 10, verse 30. And that was Jesus' claim. Now, when Jesus said that, the reaction of the Jews was very uh, severe. Verse 31 says, then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Uh, and Jesus answered them, for the works I have showed you from, uh, and I can only see part of my screen, I, I, I'm afraid I don't have, that's better. Um, Jesus answered, the many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we stone thee not. But for blasphemy, and because thou being a man, makest thyself God. And so when Jesus said, I and my father are one, you can see the problem that the Jews had they believed that Jesus was elevating himself to be God. Then you make yourself God. Now I want you to notice in the context, Jesus' response to that. And his response comes in verse 36. He doesn't say, well, you're right and I've got to explain it all to you. He says to them, say ye of the Father whom, uh, whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. And so Jesus is responding by telling them that he wasn't claiming to be God himself. 
He was simply claiming to be the son of God. Now, how do we understand all that? How can we measure the response of Jesus and the claim that he made from a scriptural point of view? And to understand the problem, first of all, we need to know the context. Secondly, we need to recognize the Old Testament connections that Jesus is referring to in the context. And, and lastly, we need to examine carefully Jesus' response to the religious leaders of that day to, to demonstrate his defense for not claiming to be God himself. So where do we begin? Why did Jesus say this? Well, he says it, if we look at the context, if we read the whole chapter of John, chapter 10, he says this because early in the chapter, he has said that he was the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He repeats that in verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and my father and my sheep, uh, and I know my sheep, and I'm known uh, of mine. Now that was the problem that the Jews had. It was because Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd that the, G the Jews, the Jewish leaders, thought that Jesus was elevating himself to be God. Now, why did they think that? Because if we go back to the Old Testament, God is himself described as the shepherd of Israel. Now, we're not going to look at the three verses. You can, you can make an, a note of those in Psalm 80 and Psalm 78. But the one which probably most people will be familiar with is the one in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh them to lie down in green pastures and so on. And so God in the Old Testament describes himself as the shepherd of Israel. And because the Jews knew that God was the shepherd of Israel, they understood Jesus to be claiming to be God because he said, I am the good shepherd. Now, they should have known their Bibles. And that's why it's important to look at the context and to check out the way in which the word shepherd is used. You see, that word shepherd in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word ra'ah. And you can go to a Strong's Concordance or Young's Concordance or whatever concordance you use uh, and, and, and look up that word, and it means to tend a flock. In fact, it's translated several ways in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. It's, te it's translated to feed, to shepherd. It's translated pastors. What we find if we made a catalog of, the, of the, the verses where this word occurs, we would find that even though God says that he is the shepherd of Israel, God delegated that responsibility 
to faithful men. And so Moses and Aaron were delegated the role of feeding and leading Israel. David was described as uh, a shepherd. Joshua was described as a shepherd. And, and so were the judges of Israel, those who were elevated to a position in the book of, of Numbers, the 70 elders that supervised and assisted Moses in the wilderness. And we'll just look at a couple of passages. Psalm 77. There we read, Thou ledest thy people, that's, that's speaking of God, Thou, the Lord, ledest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so God delegated that walk, uh, that work to Moses and Aaron. And as Israel came through the wilderness, it was Moses and Aaron who guided them and led them under the supervision of God, just like a shepherd. And, and if we look at the verse in First Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 6, Wheresoever I have walked with all Israel, spake I a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedars? And that word feed is the word shepherd, the Hebrew word ra'ah. And so the judges of Israel, they were given the responsibility of feeding Israel, of guiding them, of leading the, the flock through the, the difficulties of life. So now we, we begin to see a picture of, of what's going on in the Old Testament. Now, why did Jesus call himself the Good Shepherd? Well, as we said, the leaders of Israel were responsible for feeding God's flock. And we, we have a classic example of this, of Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 9. We'll not read the whole of it, we'll just read a few verses. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed but you feed not the flock. And so you can see that there was a problem amongst the, the leadership of Israel in the days of Ezekiel the prophet, 600 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't doing their job. They were feeding themselves, and in the process, they were putting to death the flock. They were neglecting them to the point where the flock was dying off. And because the leaders of Israel were conducting themselves in this way, God said, well, let's, let's just go back to the promise in, in Ezekiel. God said, I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. Well, of course, Ezekiel wrote many hundreds of years after 
King David had been alive. And, and really he's talking about an, another David because the word David means beloved. And so God says, I'm going to set up one shepherd. He shall feed them, even my servant, the beloved. And you recall when Jesus was baptized, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So God was going to raise up a shepherd that would feed his people correctly. Now, what was the shepherds like in the days of Jesus? What were they like? The context of John chapter 10 tells us. Verses 1 to 11, we, we have the whole context, but we've just picked out some words uh, from that section. Verses 5 to 6, a stranger, they will not follow. So the sheep won't follow a shepherd that they are unfamiliar with. But they will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. And then it says, this parable spake Jesus unto them, that is the leaders of Israel, and you can follow through from chapter 9 of John 10, that it is talking about the, the leaders of Israel. Chapter 9 verse 16 talks about the Pharisees. But they understood not. They just didn't understand what things they were which he spake unto them. And look what they were doing in the days of Jesus. They were no different in the days of Jesus than the days of Ezekiel. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And there's the language of Ezekiel chapter uh, 34, isn't it? And that's the beauty of, of the inspired record of the word of God. We can pick out word comparisons and link these connections. I am come, says Jesus, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And so in the days of Jesus, the leaders of Israel hadn't changed a whit. They were just as bad as they were in the days of Ezekiel. And as God promised that there would be another shepherd who would be raised up that would feed properly the nation of Israel, Jesus says, I am that shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So there's the context of why Jesus claimed to be the shepherd of Israel. It was based on the conditions that existed in his own day, which were no different than what they were in the days of Ezekiel when God promised another shepherd that would replace these shepherds and feed Israel properly. So, how did Jesus defend himself against the accusation of the leaders of Israel? Well, Jesus said in verse 34 of John 10, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Now, I don't know whether you've got a marginal reference in your Bible, but if you do, alongside that little 
is it not written in your law, I said you are gods, you should have a link with the Old Testament, a portion of scripture which records those words. And it takes us to Psalm 82. And there we have in verse 6, the words which Jesus quotes. I have said, you are gods. Now let's very briefly just read that section. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy and rid them out of the hand of the wicked. And so on. And God says, I, I said you are gods. All of you are the children of the Most High, but you shall die like men. Now, you'll notice I've highlighted in blue the word God, which occurs four times. And, and this is a Hebrew word, Elohim. It's a, it, the word God is translated from five different Hebrew words in the Old Testament. And in my Bible, I've gone through, uh, I haven't colored in the word Elohim because it occurs 2,470 2, times. But I've colored in all the other words which the word God is translated from. El, Eloah, Elah, and so on. This word Elohim, it means mighty ones. Now, very briefly, just have a look at the way in which it's translated. Well, it's translated in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 as referring to God himself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you can see from that verse why the Jews had a problem with what Jesus said. They are fiercely monotheistic. They only believe in one God. And that's the teaching of the scriptures. There is only one God. But that word Elohim is also translated gods in reference to idols, the false gods of the nations. Moses' father-in-law Jethro in Exodus 18 said, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, the gods of the nations, these idols of wood and stone, the gods of Egypt were of no comparison. They were useless before God. It's also translated in relationship to human officials, Exodus 21. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. That's the word Elohim. They were the mighty ones. They were the ones who were given the responsibility to lead and shepherd Israel during their wilderness journey and when they finally rested in the land of promise. And finally, uh, the word is translated angels in Psalm 8 and verse 5. He made him a little lower than the angels. And so we see when Jesus quotes this word and says, ye are gods, he's talking to He's talking about a specific group of people that were not the creator, but those who God had delegated the responsibility of shepherding to. Now let's have a look at that in more detail. 
Psalm 82, verse 1, says, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth amongst the gods. Now, there's a lot going on in verse 1, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, I simply want to point out that God is judging amongst the gods. How long, he says, will he judge unjustly? Ezekiel 34, he, uh, John chapter 10 shows us that that's exactly what they, uh, they did. And, and they know not, neither do they understand. And they didn't understand in Jesus' day what he was saying to them. They walk in darkness to these gods, even though they were still children of the Most High. But they were going to die like men. And so what we find is that there are other gods spoken of in Scripture besides God the Creator. And these gods were the judges of Israel. We've seen examples of that in the previous slide. Th these gods were unjust towards Israel, just like they were in Ezekiel's day and just like they were in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were children of the Most High. Israel is described as God's firstborn in the book of Exodus, chapter 4. Israel is my son, my firstborn, says God to Pharaoh. Let my son go. And so these judges were amongst Israel's firstborn. They were the children of the Most High. And so we can see when Jesus responds to the Pharisees, he says at verse 35 of John 10 and verse 36, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. You see, Jesus was only claiming to be the same as those judges of Israel. God had delegated the responsibility of shepherding Israel to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was simply claiming to be what every messenger of God was, a child of the Most High God. Now, I hope that's been helpful because it's easy to, to simply quote, I and the Father are one, and, and, and imply that Jesus uh, is claiming to be God. Jesus himself does not claim to be God, and he demonstrates why he, uh, he speaks the way he does on the basis of Old Testament scriptures and by comparing the way in which the Shepherds of Israel were neglecting the flock, and he had come to correct that. So, we'll finish there and have a look at the uh, next week's topic is the, the millennium, as, as, as Dan has reminded us, this 1,000 year reign of Christ. And then, 
another individual will be talking next week and it's a mystery workshop so that should whet our appetites and uh, uh, encourage us to to join in next week and and have a look at what this mystery workshop is all about and and finally let me just remind you of the the various methods that we can uh, communicate with you through uh, either email the bible basics webinar uh, we can go on Facebook at Brent Christadelphians. Or if you want, even after this session, if you want to ask a question, then feel free to, to do so uh, through the chat line.